Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel. We'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 21. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him out to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your presence this morning with us as we worship together. Thank you that you allow us to see you in songs when we're singing together, in prayer as we're praying together. We ask God that as Matthew comes this morning to bring the word that he has prepared, we ask that our hearts would be open, our hearts would be soft, our ears would be open that you would teach us, um, that we would receive, and that we would recognize your spirit even more. Thanks for this time that we can be together. Amen. So I have a, uh, I have a song for you. They don't let me join the worship team ever. But when I'm in this moment, they can't stop me. <laughs> so sing if you know it. The B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. The Bible. Oh, see, you got it. The B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Bible. You got, you got, hey, give yourselves a hand. That's right. See? I'm ready. That, I don't know when I learned that song about the Bible, but it was early, and it's so early that I don't remember not knowing it. Um, and that song, like I just, I, even like random times, I, it's one that I hum. It's one that I, you know, clearly I've practiced often. Uh, it, it, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's ingrained uh, in me. It's sort of uh, catchy. Um, when I was a teenager, I uh, is really when I began to 
um, to grow in my faith. I, I didn't necessarily grow up in a, in a Christian home that attended church a lot, but when I was a teenager, I had some friends that invited me to church, and we began going. And um, one of the ways that I learned the books of the Bible, I think I've shared this before, uh, is I learned it through a rap, through a rap group called Preachers in Disguise, P-I-D. Anybody? No? And it, was just, it, was like the, it was just all of the books, books of the Bible, it, it, you know. My homeboy Joshua and Judges, don't you leave out Ruth? We got Kings and Sam. It's better than Strawberry Jam. Yeah. No, hey, I'll flow on you now. Don't let this bald head and this beard, like, man, I'll, I got rhymes and lines. But it's how, like, hey, I'm telling you, I used to leave the mic hot, smoking. Now I slam it when I'm done to make sure that it's broken. Anybody? Eric B. Rockin', no. Got some work to do with y'all, man. I just say, so the ways that I've been shaped by song and through music have, and my understanding of the Bible have, have been, um, I don't know, spotty at best. Even, even, the, even the rap, for example, like, I, I just want you to know, just sort of full confession, I have a master's degree and a doctorate in Bible, and I still get tripped up on the order. Because in the rhyme, even the lines that I just said, uh, it reversed when Samuel and Kings come for the sake of the rhyme. And so I'll be flipping through and be like, man, they got the books mixed up here because P.I.D. told me <laughs> that it was Kings and Sam, but in the Bible they put Samuel first. And so, you know, I think all of us sort of, we come to the Bible in kind of a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting way. There have been places uh, and times in our lives where the scriptures have been just quite a comfort to us. It's been the place that we've gone to to, to be a balm in times of sorrow and in times of pain. But the Bible also has this complicated history in our lives and in our world. It's been misused at different points for oppressive purposes. Um, a few months back, uh, the staff, we went uh, to the Bible Museum and toward the museum. It's a, it's a fascinating spot. I, I would encourage you to it, but they had uh, an exhibit there on the slave Bible. Bibles that were used uh, for the sole purpose of oppressing other human beings. Places where they had parts of the scriptures cut out to suit their purposes. There's an image that I have here. You may not be able to see it, but in the slave Bible, one of the things that they did was they stopped Genesis at chapter 45 and then didn't pick up the story until Exodus 19. They cut out the entire Exodus journey. The entire salvation journey that shaped Judaism. I had a friend when Lisa and I lived in Nigeria um, who, she, she wasn't a, a Christian, she was kind of wrestling with her faith and she had a complicated uh, story as it relates to faith and, um, and even the Bible and sort of viewed it just more as rules and um, oppressive structures and Lisa and I were there like, well, this is why we've come to this place to understand our faith more fully. And we began to tell her about uh, a Jesus and the story of the Bible, one that uh, calls us all to health and calls us to uh, salvation and redemption in Christ. But not just for our souls, but for the whole world. And they came to a point where she said, well, if that's, if that's the gospel that you're trying to preach, well, I believe that. That's kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke. One of the things that she gave us when she left, she gave me, um, was the Jefferson Bible. Um, I don't know if you know the history of the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, he would actually take uh, the scriptures and with, a, with a razor. He would cut out the parts that he didn't appreciate or didn't esteem and then put together his own Bible. And so it's a collection here. Malini gave this to me. She inscribes uh, in it, which is both humorous in keeping with who she is and, and also a great treasure. She said, for Pastor Matthew which I think if Thomas Jefferson knew that this was for Pastor Matthew, he may have some issue with it, but 
He said, good luck in the task of bringing the true spirit of Christianity to the masses. You see, what, what, what Thomas Jefferson did was he took out all of the references to anything supernatural, including the resurrection, and just included the teachings of Jesus, the ethical statements. So we have this sort of this, uh, complicated history with the Bible of ways that we choose and misuse it. Parts of the Bible that, are, that have been hard for us to hear, uh, that have been either misapplied or misunderstood or used in painful ways, ways that point towards death, not towards liberation or healing or salvation. I, I think that probably in, in, in this room, and in, in just kind of knowing a bit of who we are, that most of us are so on some spectrum of the Bible, of, of being transformed on the one hand or maybe even skeptical on the other. There are folks here whose lives have been absolutely transformed by this book by the story that's told in this book, by the person to whom the book points. There are folks here who love the Bible and who wouldn't be here if not for the truths revealed in the Bible. And there are those who are still unsure about what to make of certain parts of the Bible. We don't understand certain parts, and maybe we're fearful of certain parts. And I think that probably we all sort of fall not just on one place on that spectrum. We probably fall on multiple points. But what I want today, and the point of today, is is to situate the Bible in Jesus' life and to have us consider what it means for where the Bible ought to be situated in our own lives. Um, uh, We're in just past the halfway point of our Learning to Live series where we're really exploring what does it mean for us to learn to live as Jesus lived. We began uh, in week one, weeks ago, a couple of months actually at this point, with, with an invitation um, asking the question of what do you want, a question that Jesus asked, where we reflect on our own desires and what drives us and what motivates us. We uh, spanned weeks where we talked about our own story, about the ways that our history and our collective histories have shaped who we are. And then also we talked about in another week uh, God's story and how our own story fits into what God is doing. We've, uh, this past week, many of you um, explored uh, the spiritual discipline of prayer in a deep and meaningful way, as many of our small groups went on uh, prayer retreats. Um, We have talked about overcoming and enduring, about uh, uh, wrestling with sin and with our own brokenness, with uh, the enemy, with Satan, and examining how we live into God's reality in the midst of this reality. And today, in case you couldn't figure it out, we're talking about the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me, and apparently some of you too. Um, I want to just um, touch on just for a minute some of the basics of the Bible. I don't want to assume um, anything. Um, the Bible is divided into two sections. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 66 combined books of the Bible, and, and I say that with an asterisk, which I'll get to in a minute. The Old Testament was written um, predominantly in Hebrew, although there's some Aramaic in it. For the Hebrew Bible, for the, for the Jews, they, uh, they don't call it the Old Testament, uh, and they don't call it the Hebrew Bible, they call it the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. And it's a, and it's a conglomeration of, of uh, the first letter of three different words, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kethavim. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the ones that are attributed to Moses, and it's often referred to as the law. The Nevi'im are the prophets. You can think of Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and others. The Kethavim are the writings. This would be wisdom uh, books or, or the poetry books like the Psalms, and Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. The Old Testament, what we would refer to as the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible, it was formed um, over, over centuries. Um, the writings were circulated for centuries. And the Hebrew Bible, or the canon as it's often referred to, it was closed and, and codified, brought together these individual books, were brought together around the time of Jesus, just before Jesus' arrival. 
The New Testament is comprised of 27 books. It was written predominantly in Greek, um, and it's composed of the Gospels, of the history of the church. It's composed of letters and composed of a book of prophecy, what we call Revelation. Similar to the Old Testament, the apostles, they, they wrote down the life and teachings of Jesus after his resurrection, and these writings began to circulate um, around the communities of faith that were propping up in the ancient world. And between 100 and 400 A.D. is when these books were written and began to be circulated, and the New Testament as a, as a collection as what we have now was closed around 400 A.D. Now, there are other books, there are other writings that were um, circulating in the Jewish communities that were circulating in the Jewish communities and in synagogues between 500 B.C. and around the life of Jesus. Now, these writings, as they circulated, um, uh, Jews didn't view them as scripture, they didn't view them as part of the canon, as the Old Testament, but they uh, highly valued them. When Christianity formed, different Christian communities began handling these other writings a bit differently. These writings are often called the deuterocanonical writings. Say uh, deuterocanonical. Not bad. Not bad. I'll take it. Um, and there's three ways that the different Christian traditions viewed these writings. Um, all the Christian communities, uh, they shared the same Old Testament and the New Testament, but they handled these deuterocanonical writings differently. The Roman Catholic tradition, they included these writings in with the Old Testament. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they also included these writings, but they included others that the Roman Catholic tradition didn't. Yet even for uh, these two traditions, although they included them in the bound Bibles that they would put forward in their churches, they, did, they didn't view them with the same reverence as they did the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Protestant reformers in the 1500s, when, uh, uh, when they were forming the Bible and translating it into the different vernacular of the day, German and English and Spanish, they just went back to the traditional views and just held on to the Old Testament and New Testament and said that we're just going to keep the, the, the most historic and traditional understandings of the scriptures. Christ City stands in that Protestant tradition. Now, that's a lot, and there's a sort of um, different, uh, when we come to the Bible, that's just sort of the nuts and bolts of how it formed, and there's, we could sort of kind of take a, a nerd's journey through that at some point and, and talk a little bit more about that. But I want to talk about, just for a minute, the purpose of the Bible. There's different sort of views of what the Bible is used for and how to use it. Some folks may say, okay, the Bible, it's, a, it's an operating uh, manual for life. Others may sort of look at it and say, this is just a, a book that's filled with doctrines by which we ought to live. Others may sort of approach it in a more mystical way and say it's filled with mysteries that we need to decode. And if you only buy my decoding book for uh, $15.99, online, then you can understand the mysteries of the Bible. So there's just sort of these different ways that folks would approach the Bible. But what I want to position to you and put to you is that this collection of books has one cohesive story. And that story is God's work of redemption throughout humanity. We've touched on this previously in the four-part gospel. That these collection of books that they tell a story of creation, of fall, of redemption, and of renewal. And that this collection of books with its cohesive story that it points ever and always towards the climax that is found in Jesus. Following his resurrection in Luke 24, um, Jesus has, uh, f has been resurrected. He's walking with some of the disciples, and he begins to unpack this. In verse 27 of chapter 24, it says this, And beginning with Moses, beginning with the Torah, and with all of the prophets, the Nevi'im, the Kethuvim, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. You see, Jesus, for us as followers of Jesus, Jesus is our interpretive lens through which we read the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
We're ever and always understanding that Christ is in this story. So whatever passage or whatever story or whatever book in the Bible that we're working through or walking through, we ask ourselves, how does this passage point to, get clarified by, or get fulfilled in Jesus? One of the... um, Bibles that, uh, that we've read through with our children is uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I commend it to, to you to read um, whether you have children or not. It's a, um, really a helpful tool. And in one of the places in the Storybook Bible, it says this. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do, and the Bible certainly has rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. The story of God, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And at the center of the story, there's a baby and this child upon whom everything would depend. The Bible primarily is a story. That's why in Genesis 1, it begins with, in the beginning. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, the last book of the Bible, it ends, and they will reign forever and ever, because that's how stories are framed. The Bible, though, it's made up of different books, written by different authors in different places at different times, but yet it tells one unified story, the story of a God who loves, a God who saves, and the God who redeems, and at the center of it all is Jesus. And Jesus' story and the anticipation of Jesus is woven throughout. A pastor out of New York, Timothy Keller, he uh, points this out and highlights the ways that the Old Testament especially points to and anticipates Jesus and foreshadows the climax of the story. He would say this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestles and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but rather said, when I perish, I will perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angels of death would pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible really isn't about you. It's about him. There's so much more to say about the scriptures, about the Bible's reliability, about the Bible's veracity and truthfulness, and about translations and tools to interpreting the Bible, and so many other nerdy things that I'd love to talk to you about another time, but that are good and true and beautiful. But before the time slips away, there's two things that I want to touch on. One is I want us to see how Jesus handled scripture. 
And then I want the scriptures to minister to us. So quickly, how did Jesus handle the scriptures? First is, I would say, and I'm thankful to Justin for helping me with much of this. Uh, first is that Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew, but he didn't just know them like facts and figures, but he, but he understood them. He understood the meaning. Jesus spent time in the word. As a, as a, as a young Jewish boy, he would have memorized entire sections, if not entire uh, uh, books of the Bible. Not just disembodied verses, but entire passages. And Jesus' response to, to Satan in the wilderness, I'm, I'm reading from Matthew, which is the parallel to Luke's passage that we read. In verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter, the enemy, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shouldn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responds, and, and he responds with a verse out of, out of Deuteronomy. It's a verse from Deuteronomy 8. In verse 1, it says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised an oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that humanity doesn't live on bread alone but in every word that comes from the mouth. You see, what Jesus is doing, what he's responding to the tempter with, although he's just quoting one verse, he's actually referencing the entire section, and not just an entire section that I read, but an entire story. The story of the Jewish Exodus narrative, their, their salvation story. And he's quoting the longer narrative of God's care for his children, even in the wilderness years. Those verses that I read, it would go on to say, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land in Deuteronomy, a land with brooks and streams and hills and springs gushing. He would go on to say, and when you have eaten and when you have satisfied, praise the Lord your God for, the good land, for what the good land has given you, but be careful and don't forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands and his laws and his decrees. Otherwise, when you have eaten and when you have been satisfied, when you've built fine houses and settled down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What, what Jesus is saying here in the midst of the wilderness, even though he's hungry, he is testifying to the sustaining power of God. He is saying, yes, I'm hungry now, and I'm not where I want to be, but it won't always be this way forever, and it won't be this way for long. And when the seasons change, and when there's fruit on the vine, and when the leaves are green, and the river is full and flowing, and the cupboards are full, and the harvest is plenty, in that moment, I too will need to remember that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on the word of God. And so even though he is just saying one verse, he's saying a larger story because he knew the scriptures and he understood them and he was bringing that entire story to bear on the weight and on the temptation that was on him in that moment. Jesus knew the word, he understood the word. I think it would be like this if, if, if I were to quote a verse that, that I suspect maybe many of you would know, but not everybody. I don't want to, to, to make assumptions and it's okay if you don't, but there's, there's a very familiar passage, John three sixteen. You know what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. There's a way of knowing that story, of knowing the larger story of what God has done on our behalf that I pray and that I, and that I sing and that I say over my children because I want them to know that story. 
It helps me sort of rightly see them, and it helps them to rightly see themselves in the larger story of what God is doing. And that's one place to sort of know the story, to know the scriptures. But what would it also mean for me when, when I'm on the blue line after transferring and sort of navigating the masses that is LaFont Plaza, and I'm standing, I'm just looking out over the sea of humanity on the blue line on the train, and I say, for God so loved the world. For he so loved these children that are gathered here on this train. It helps me orient. It helps tune my heart to the larger story that God is writing in my life and in the lives of everyone that I come in contact with. Jesus didn't just know Scripture. He also used Scripture. There's a couple of ways that he often used Scripture in the Gospels. He used it to confront, and he also used it to comfort. He used it to confront people, particularly the religious leaders of the day and the Pharisees, but he also used it to comfort people, including himself. In Luke 4.25, he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. There was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow, Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. What Jesus is doing in this moment, remember his location. He is in a synagogue. He is surrounded by other Jews. He has just uh, unrolled uh, uh, the, the scripture, the, the, the prophet Isaiah. And he said, the Lord is on me. The spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he's rolled it. And now he's followed up with them. And what he is putting forward in these scriptures, he is putting forward to this Jewish crowd, he's pre- after he's just preached his inaugural address, he is telling them that uh, the scriptures are fulfilled in him. And now he's confronting them with these two other references, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and Elisha and Naaman. These are two heroes in these stories but that aren't a part of, uh, of Judaism. They aren't Jewish. They aren't a, a, a part of what they understood to be God's kingdom. He's using these passages and these stories in the Old Testament to remind the people of God gathered in the synagogue that God's kingdom is expansive and it's expanding. And that this kingdom includes that those gathered in that place thought were excluded from the kingdom. And that it includes those that were traditionally hostile to the kingdom. And it includes those... Th- that would have been viewed as enemies to those that were gathered there. And it's at this point that those that are gathered become quite furious with Jesus because he's confronted them with their own scriptures. Verse 28, and the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. If you didn't believe me when I said it, I just figured I would (laughs) proof text it there for you. The story goes on and says that they gathered Jesus, they tried to kill him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. But the other way that Jesus uses scripture is not just to confront, but also to comfort. One example is in uh, Luke 13, where he uses scripture actually to comfort his own soul. He says this in verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house has, has left you, has left, look, your house has left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That last line, Jesus is quoting again, Psalm 118. And again, though, he's, he's quoting just these, this one verse, verse 26. 
blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it would trigger a larger passage. And the way that Psalm 118 begins is this. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. You see, in the midst of his sorrow over what he sees in Jerusalem and amidst a people that he cares deeply about, he is reminding himself and anyone within earshot that even in the midst of hard places, the Lord's love endures forever. And it's in this moment the word of God is being used to comfort the Son of God for the people of God. You see, Jesus was, uh, he knew Scripture and he used Scripture. But the third thing that I'll say is that Jesus was formed by Scripture. We are able to see this, and we know this a bit inductively. We can uh, tell by what Jesus says, by what he does, by how, how he responds both to the enemy's testing and to the crowd's response. Jesus doesn't seem, even with their gathering him up in, in, in Luke 4, he doesn't seem to be anxious or worried or afraid. Matter of fact, when they get him and they're about to toss him off the cliff, it's like all of a sudden he like flexes, and then the scriptures say he just passes through the middle of them. He's like, what's up? I think because the word of God was so rooted in his soul, he responds with the word that is in his heart, it's in his soul, it's in his mind. I think so often that we think that Jesus displays this peace in chaotic situations just because he's the son of God, like it was some like, character trait of him, and maybe that was in part true, and that that's why he was able to display peace in chaos. But I think that he was also able to display peace in the midst of turbulence because he was formed by the scriptures. He didn't just quote Psalm 118 and the reminders of God's enduring love because he was the second person of the Trinity. He was able to look over the people and of the brokenness of the world with empathy and love and a surpassing peace because he had been shaped by the truths of Psalm 118. Jesus didn't simply quote Isaiah 58 uh, in the synagogue because he believed it was a good opening to his ministry or was a good vision statement. He had been shaped by these spirit-inspired words from the prophet. These passages formed him and it informed his earthly work of salvation and redemption. Jesus was formed by the scriptures. And so, church, I'll just say that if we are to follow Jesus, then it is also imperative that we follow Jesus in our engagement of the Bible. It's important that we know the scriptures and that we're formed by the scriptures that we use scriptures in our own lives and circumstances in the world, but this requires that we spend time in the scriptures. Years ago, um, <clears throat> before I was a, uh, started pastoring in churches, I worked with uh, nonprofit organizations. I did a good bit of grant writing. Uh, no, I'm not available uh, to help you with your, with your grants. Uh, my certificate in Grant writing from Fresno State University has more dust than I can shake off of it at this point. But one of the things that we would often do whenever we would write grants is we always had to articulate our theory of change. Some of you are like, ah, no, please don't fool with me with that. Like, and with your theory of change, there was a way that you had to sort of talk about your inputs into the project. You had to talk about what outputs would come out of it. And then as a result of those outputs, what's going to be the outcome of your project? If we are to be faithful followers of Jesus, one of the inputs that we have to put into our lives is that of Scripture. And that means that one of uh, uh, the outputs has to be that we have spent time in the Scriptures so that the outcome can be that we can be a people that learn to live as Jesus would live. 
that we have to cultivate that time. What the scriptures tell us is that the word of God is alive and it's active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. And that's good news to us. That's gospel. Scriptures also tell us that God is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we have received from God. And One of the great comforts that we have received from God is God's Word. And so just to finish out, what I'd like to do is just spend some moments letting God's Word minister to you. I want to ask the band to come on up. As they come, here's what I want to do. I know that um, I suspect we have all shown up in this place uh, carrying with us all sorts of uh, emotions, bringing with us all sorts of circumstances that are hard to leave at the door of the church. We come into this place with with a history, some recent, some ancient. We, we come into this place with questions, with, with worries, with sorrows, with hopes and joys. And so just in this moment, what I, what, what I want to do is, I just want to speak Scripture over you for a minute. I just want to ask for you to kind of close your eyes for a minute and just take on a, a posture of prayer. As the, as the band plays... Hear these words from the word of God for the people of God. Some of you may have come in here with with an anxiety about a circumstance or a situation or a relationship, a worry about a future. If that's you, hear this. Psalm 55. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening and morning and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you, daughter. He will never let the righteous be shaken, son. But as for me, I trust in the Lord. Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. Who can mere, what can mere mortals do to me? Isaiah 41. So do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let the words of the Lord wash over you, dear one. Some of you may have come in here and there's a sorrow that has rested on your soul. either because of a loss of a loved one or 
a loss of a dream or an opportunity, or maybe just a sorrow that you can't explain its origin, it's just there. Hear these words from the Lord to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The Lord, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and he calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Some of you may be in this place and you're praying about direction or discernment. There are decisions in front of you and you're not sure which way to go. Or maybe you aren't even sure that there are options in front of you and you're not sure what's up ahead. Hear these words for you. This is from Proverbs 3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and of humanity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. John 6, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink about your body or what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by wearying add a single hour to your life? But seek first. His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord says to you. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Some of us in here may be wrestling with some sin or some aspect of brokenness in our life and it continues to frustrate us, continues to entangle us. If that's you, if that's where you are, hear these words, dear saint. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of our sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh. Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hebrews 12, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Some of you here have been wrestling with, with God's presence and whether or not he's present in your life. And where can we look for peace? <laughs> Hear this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you are coming to this place with with maybe some mix of all of these, but you've also come in with joy and with thanksgiving. So hear these words. We'll finish with these. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and you did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. 
You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord. You, his faithful people, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, these words of the Lord or seen in me, put these things into practice and the God of peace will be with you, saints. God, I pray these words over this dear church. I pray that they minister to them. I pray that they comfort, that they challenge us where we need it, that they would remind us of your delight over us and your faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to you, but because you first loved us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Will you stand and continue to worship the God of all creation? If you would like to receive prayer, we have our prayer stations on either side. Continue to worship. Join us in worship and respond as the Spirit leads.